Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, July 13th, we're studying Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 26 to 44. The Lord answers Jeremiah's prayer by reminding the prophet of the certainty of the word of the Lord, both his word of judgment and his word of salvation. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, Reverend Dr. Christopher Jackson. Pastor Jackson serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Algoma, Wisconsin, and St. Peter's Lutheran Church in Forestville, Wisconsin. Pastor Jackson, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Hey, thanks a lot for having me on, Pastor Apple. As we get started this morning, Pastor Jackson, let's talk a little context here. We're in the middle of chapter 32, the middle of Jeremiah's book of comfort. What do we know about the immediate context? Uh, anything in Jeremiah's ministry in his book that will help us into the section of chapter 32 we have today? Yeah, I think that uh, the verse that immediately precedes it is a good segue into this. So um, Jeremiah is praying a prayer in the middle of uh, chapter 32. Um, he's basically saying, look, God, nothing is too great for you. Um, you know, he has he, he recounts how the Lord saved them out of Egypt and brought them into the land to take possession of it and so on and so forth. And then he asks this question. Yet you, O Lord, have said to me, buy the field uh, for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. And in essence, he's asking God a question, um, asking the Lord for understanding about what's going on here. And there's a a couple little uh, excursuses I'd like to kind of take with this. Um, And the first is to just talk a little bit briefly about the way that that scripture works. And, um, you know, as, as Lutheran Christians, we take very, very seriously the holy inspiration of, uh, of the scriptures that, that these are word for word, the inspired word of God, um, and, and given to the prophets and the apostles to write. Um, and I don't know when I was a, a younger person uh, in my mind, I envisioned that, you know, God's sitting there and, you know, whispering into the ears of, of the apostles, every, every single word. And, and actually that's depicted that way in a lot of art. And I think that's, 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 a, you know, a reasonable way to depict it, to, to convey that these words are God's words. Um, but uh we should never lose sense of the fact that uh, these words that come to us in Holy Scripture, um, to put it in, in, in kind of Christological terms, that these are you know, incarnational. These are uh, words that uh, have come to us through the experiences and um, the encounter of of actual people with the living God. And I don't think it, you really have a, a clearer example of this than here in Jeremiah uh, chapter 32. Um, so in, in Jeremiah chapter 32, this, this really what might seem a, a confusing thing happens. So um, Nebuchadnezzar's armies are surrounding Jerusalem, you know, this world superpower, the Babylonian empire, just this, uh, they've, they've had other, um, other empires and other kingdoms have fallen before them. Um, just this, this world superpower, there's, there's maybe two or three, uh, in that part of the world at this time. And, uh, just this massive inland empire. And, uh, so Jerusalem is surrounded and, uh, by, by this, uh, army, um, and Jeremiah is in prison. Okay. So Jeremiah's circle in which he can operate is incredibly small. He really, um, can't do much other than, you know, read, write, pray, uh, this sort of thing. 
But while he's there in prison, his cousin, his cousin comes to him, uh, Hannibal, um, and he comes to him and says, hey, Jeremiah, uh, you need to buy this field from me. And, you know, so this is kind of an interesting thing. Um, there are different ways that are interpreted. I, I read one commentator that, you know, said, well, this was, you know, Jeremiah had been alienated from his family through his ministry. And so this was kind of like a, a reconciliation with his family. And, and I, there, there's probably something to that there. Uh, but on the other hand, you might wonder is his cousin of his, actually trying to do Jeremiah a favor or not, right? So I don't know. I, if I'm putting myself in the shoes of his cousin, I'm saying, okay, I have this field. I can't leave Jerusalem to go out and tend it. Um, maybe it's been salted by the Babylonians, right? And and made unfit for my use uh, for a number of years. And I, I can't go inspect it. I can't go tend to it. Um, and if the Babylonians take over, who knows if they're even going to honor our land contracts and so on. Uh, so it looks like I have this useless field. I may as well offload it. Um, well, people get kind of sentimental about their family land. Maybe my cousin, Jeremiah, uh, is going to buy. He's kind of this different kind of guy anyways. Um, you know, maybe this will happen. That, that's the way I kind of envision it in my mind um, a little bit. And I think that um, this sort of view would actually go right along with what Jeremiah, um, you know, Jeremiah is, uh, is talking about. Um, so, um his cousin comes, offers him the field to purchase it from him. And in verse eight, uh, Jeremiah says, um, then I knew that this was the word of the Lord, right? So there's a circumstance that, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, may even in a worldly sense, look rather foolish for him to, um, for him to, to engage in this. Uh, but Jeremiah gets the sense that, you know, this is what God is calling me to do, that he's speaking to me through my cousin to purchase this field, uh, for a purpose that I don't even understand yet. And so he goes ahead and he, um, purchases the field and they write out the documents and, you know, he is commanded to, um, you know, commanded by God to, to seal up, uh, the deed of sale into a jar to preserve it for, you know, coming decades and, and generations. Uh, but he still doesn't entirely understand why he knows that this strange circumstance is, is on account of God. Um, but, uh, the purposes that God has behind it, he's not yet aware of, um, uh, by the way, uh, here's a second little excursus here. Um, I don't, I don't really believe in uh, chance anymore. <laughs> uh, there was a time where I would have seen, um, you know, all sorts of things that happen in the world as sort of like chance and, uh, you know, uh, circumstance or whatever. And uh, ultimately, I've come to believe that a belief in a providential God. Uh, you know, nothing's really an accident, right? So um, the way that Luther, uh, the reformers talk about the, the things they encounter in the world, very different than, than us who have um, gone through the enlightenment <laughs> and have sort of, because of this, see God as much more removed from the affairs of the world than, you know, like those who are uh, people like Jeremiah and Luther. So Jeremiah has this weird thing happen. He understands us from God. He doesn't understand why, um, but this is why he utters this prayer. Lord, help me to understand um, why it is that you've called me to uh, buy this field. This doesn't make any sense. I'm in prison. Uh, these armies are around Jerusalem. I can't inspect the field. I can't work it. Who knows if it's even in good condition for agriculture anymore. Uh, open my eyes to see um the purposes for what you've called me to do this in this kind of sign act 
Um, and then that leads into this passage for today, uh, 26 uh, through 44, verses 26 through 44 of, of chapter 32, in which God explains um, the significance of the sign in this act, uh, both for uh, Jeremiah and for the people to whom Jeremiah is speaking. This action of of buying the field is a very, it ends up being a very gracious thing that the Lord does through the preaching of that. We, we did see a little bit of that yesterday where Jeremiah does have an idea in verse 15, for example, where he does tell, you know, what, what he tells to Baruch, what the Lord has told him already. And, and I think the answer that the Lord's going to give today further is going to reveal to Jeremiah what he's up to in the buying of this field and what he's preaching to his people through it. Yeah, it's so it's a he has this sort of hazy understanding, but we have a much more full uh, vision of what what happens, um, you know, what happens here um, in that, he, that, that the Lord lays out for him uh, in this passage. Yeah. Um, but Jeremiah is, uh, is certainly, um, what I love about this is that we are sort of on the journey of discovery along with Jeremiah, right? He is, uh, we are watching him as he comes to understand more fully what God is, uh, getting ready to do. And, and, and here's where I would say that, uh, you know, after this prayer, um, this is where the Christological connection comes in. Jeremiah understands that the time will come when, um, you know, fields again will be bought and sold in this land. Um, but the, the picture of redemption that we get seems to be much greater in this passage that for today, um, than just, you know, a return to, to the Holy land or buying and selling. Um, there seems to be that God has something much bigger in mind than even just that. Let's go ahead then and dig into the answer that the Lord gives to Jeremiah. We're in chapter 32, beginning at verse 26 today. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am giving this city into the hands of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against this city shall come and set this city on fire and burn it with the houses on whose roofs offerings have been made to Baal and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to provoke me to anger. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day so that I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Moloch, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. I think I'll pause there, Pastor Jackson, as a a bit of a break in that prayer. So the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah, he's answering his prayer, and he identifies himself quite quite similarly to the way Jeremiah identified him at the beginning of his prayer where where the Lord asks is anything too hard for me Jeremiah already said nothing is too hard for you so he's he's certainly answering Jeremiah's prayer what do you you see in this part of the prayer for us to pay attention to yeah so uh, i mean you're right he he certainly um echoes the words that Jeremiah um has said and and he goes into you know much greater detail than about why these armies have have come up against um, come up come up against Jerusalem. So uh, he talks about, for example, how um, you know the Chaldeans are fighting against the city shall come and set the city on fire and burn it with the houses on whose offerings have been made to Baal. Um, there's a uh, I think this is a really interesting passage uh, there because um, the punishment brought upon Jerusalem there seems somewhat consistent 
with the nature of their transgression. So it, it appears that people are up on their their houses, uh, upon their roofs, and that they're offering burnt offerings uh, up to Baal, as was the custom. And because they had burnt offerings to Baal, uh, this false god, therefore, um, so also Jerusalem uh, will be burned, right? Um, they pour out drink offerings to other gods, and, and this makes him angry. Um, and this is something that is not just confined to, it, it's not just like there's a few people uh, that are doing this, but really we see the entire nation um, is, the entire nation, even beyond Judah, is involved in this. So he talks about how it's it's not just Judah, but also this was something that the, the children of Israel engaged in, um, as is happening here in Judah. Um, and not only in Israel and in Judah, but also, um, you know, the, the, everybody from like the greatest to the lowest. So, you know, on, on rooftops throughout the city, the common people are, are offering these offerings and, and pouring out these libations to the false gods. Um, but it's not just the common people, but it's also the, the leaders of the people in, um, you know, we live in kind of, a um, I don't know, uh, an era in which we don't really look too highly necessarily upon, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, elites. But in in Jeremiah's time, um, you know, leadership was a very uh, important and, and serious thing. So the fact that the um, the, the priests and uh, the nobles and, you know, the great merchants and, and all the leaders of the people were engaging in this, um, in a sense, uh, they they stood at the vanguard of the people and, and the other people followed along um, behind that leadership. So we see the entire nation, we see the entire city, we see people at the very top and top echelons of society uh, down through the, the lower echelons of society. Everybody is engaged in doing this, um, uh, doing this idolatry. And it's gotten so bad that it's actually even happening in the temple. Um, so it talks about how the priests and their prophets are doing this, uh, verse 33. I, I thought this was a really interesting thing because we, we can actually see a connection here with, um, one of the contemporaries of Jeremiah and that's Ezekiel. So, uh, Jeremiah says in verse 33 that they I believe, meaning the priests, uh, primarily, they have turned their back to me, their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to my to receive instruction. And they have set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. Now, if we take a look at Ezekiel chapter eight, uh, we get a um, I think that we we have a very vivid description that that. Um, talks about the nature of uh, exactly what's happening there. All right. So um, in chapter eight of uh, Ezekiel, um, Ezekiel's given kind of this, this, this vision, I would, I would call it um, where, where God asks him in this vision to penetrate into the um inner chambers and, and inner courtyards of the temple. Um, and so he, he commands Ezekiel in this vision to dig a hole in the wall um, of the temple. And, uh, you know, God says to him in verse nine, go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. Uh, so this connection with the abominations that was discussed in, um, in Jeremiah chapter 32 uh, he says, so I went in and saw and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel, with Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand and the smoke of the clouds of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He said also to me, You will see greater abominations that they commit. 
so uh, we we see in Ezekiel that uh, that these priests and the and the great priests have engraved and inscripted on the very walls of the temple itself uh, these inscriptions of uh, of false gods and goddesses um, and 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 these graven images that. Um, a, it's incorrect to to worship anything other than the one true Lord God, and and certainly also uh, was not permitted to to make these graven images upon the temple. Um, I'm not entirely sure exactly uh, what um, is happening there, uh, like where these inscriptions were uh, necessarily. But I, I get the feeling as I read this that that perhaps this is this connect. There's a bit of a connection to what um, Jeremiah is talking about in terms of people offering up these uh, sacrifices even in their own homes. Um, it the the temple was a complex. You know, a lot of times we just think about the temple as uh, just like a, a church building or something like this, or just a, a, a cultic uh, worship building. It was really much more than this. I mean, the temple had storerooms. Um, the temple had dwellings in it. If you read Josephus, it talks about how uh, there were various apartments within the temple complex where various priests um, and Levites were permitted to dwell, at least for periods of time. Um, and and the way it talks about this, I almost get the picture um, that, that these priests uh, have within their own dwellings um, have set up these idols. So it's not even like, um, you know, these, you know, we're familiar with some of the kings of the Old Testament putting up these, uh, you know, false idols and so on in, uh, in the temple. Um, this is a much more even uh, personal kind of sin than this, you know, the priests have fully bought into this so much to the, to the extent that they themselves with their own hands are, are taking up censors within their own dwellings and, and offering these, um, these, these, uh, burnt offerings of incense up to these false gods and, and before these graven images. Um, so he says, look, this is bad enough, right? Uh, that these priests, their hearts would have been turned to other gods and, and allow the temple to be defiled. Um, but there's even greater abominations than this. All right. Uh, so uh, he talks about how there are these um, women weeping for uh, Tammuz um, in the midst of the temple. Um, I, I don't want to focus uh, too much on this. I think we could probably uh, go quite a bit uh you know, it would, would take a, a lot to unpack exactly what's happening there. But uh, in essence, Tammuz was um, kind of a, a god of fertility. Um, and so there are these, these women that are engaged in somehow a kind of devotion to this uh, Mesopotamian uh, fertility god. And, um, you know, perhaps in the way that... Uh, I won't go too deep into this, but there are, there are ways that fertility gods and goddesses were worshipped in the ancient world that would certainly be um, less than uh, the, the holy kind of conduct you would expect within the temple. Um, then he goes on to say, And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord, and behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. And so, you know, if we go back to Jeremiah chapter 32, it talks about how these leaders and these priests have turned their back on God. This is a, both a, a literal and a, both a figurative and a literal turning their backs on God, right? So um, the, the, the presence, the special gracious presence of God was, was located um, in the, the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies of the temple and, and really all worship, uh, for, for, for ancient Israelites was to be directed, um, to this place. So for example, like faithful Daniel, uh, all the way in Babylon, where does he direct his prayers? He directs his prayers in the direction in which he knew, 
um, you know, the temple uh, and the mountain of God was. But here we find that these um, these priests are doing the exact opposite. Instead of directing their prayers uh, towards the uh, towards the uh, holy of holies in the temple, instead they've they've even you know, in order to do this kind of worship that they would need to do, they've actually come out of the temple. And they're standing, in a sense, before the temple with their backs towards the Holy of Holies. And instead, they're bowing down and they're worshiping the rising sun uh, coming up from the east in the opposite direction of which the, the temple was. And um, and worshiping the sun as a god. And, and God says to Ezekiel in this vision, then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations they commit here? That they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger. Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. And so I, I think that this uh, this chapter from Ezekiel 8 really helps to fill in the blanks about the, the kind of um, turning the backs upon God that um, that is talked about in Jeremiah as well as um, as well as the uh, the the abominations. And um, let's not forget pa- and Pastor this, Jackson, that's yeah, that's a just a just briefly, I mean that that's a fantastic connection. I don't know that I would have thought to look for Ezekiel eight to connect to Jeremiah ter- chapter thirty two, but to see how that very literal turning of the face, turning of the back is is in view here, I think is a fantastic connection. And I, I want to hear more from you, but we do need to take a break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, talking Jeremiah chapter thirty two with Pastor Christopher Jackson. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, July 13th. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 26 to 44 with Pastor Christopher Jackson. He serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Algoma, Wisconsin, and St. Peter's Lutheran Church in Forestville, Wisconsin. Pastor Jackson, prior to the break, we were looking at the first part of the Lord's answer to Jeremiah. We left off in about verses 34 and 35, where the Lord speaks about uh, more abominations. And he, he specifies something we've heard him talk about before, the Valley of the Son of Hinnom and some of the child sacrifice that's happening there. What do we need to pick up from those last two verses before we move on to the rest of the text? Yeah, so it sounds like you've you've probably talked about the nature of this God Molech and you know his demand for the the blood of children. Um, you know, this is uh, by the way something that is documented. People kind of thought that it was um, an exaggeration by the prophets that you know people would actually sacrifice their children to uh, this God Molech. Uh, there there is archaeological evidence of this. Um, uh, you know, this, this God Molech was a Phoenician God and, um, actually, uh, in the African, uh, colonies of, of Phoenicia, um, they, they found, uh, evidence of this. So this certainly did seem to, to actually, well, I mean, we, we know it happened from scripture. We, we do have archeological evidence to affirm what we knew from scripture. We'll put it that way. Um, so, but the, the one point I'd like to make about this is, um, one might, if one were a skeptical person and did not consider, you know, matters of faith to be that important, which I know that most of our listeners are not, but I think this is a, you know, I think important for us to just kind of bring out is that we, um, we come to resemble um, the gods and the goddesses that we worship. And this actually comes into play in, uh, in, in the rest of verse 30, uh, chapter 32, um, you know, this, this, 
this heart, these hearts being devoted to these gods, um, you know, Baal, Tammuz, and um, Molech um, did lead to immoral action. Uh, you know, these, these selfish uh, pagan gods led people to act selfishly um, in ways that were bloodthirsty, uh, in ways that were far less than holy. And um, the, neighbor, the, the people um, did um, injure each other and um, do damage to those who even ought to have um, the most dependence upon them, even their own children, because of their hearts and their backs being turned against God. Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's a fantastic point to make that this idol worship did have consequences in real life with the people to whom God had given them to love and, and children being right there among the most vulnerable, the people should have been taking care of them. Instead, they're sacrificing them as a part of this idolatrous worship. It's it's just a, a terrible abomination that's happening in the people of Judah and Jerusalem. The Lord recounts all that to Jeremiah, as we've heard Jeremiah preach in the past. And now the Lord turns in his answer to Jeremiah and, and begins to describe how this all comes together with the buying of the field that just happened previously in the chapter. So we pick up the rest of the text now in Jeremiah chapter 32, beginning at verse 36. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land of which you are saying, it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negev. For I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. That's the rest of our text for today. The rest of Jeremiah 32, 36 through 44. So Pastor Jackson, as we've seen several times in this book of comfort, these chapters 30 through 33 in Jeremiah, you have these sharp transitions between law and gospel. The Lord has been speaking all of this judgment against his people. And suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, here he turns and says, this is what is going to happen to them in judgment. But here's the promise that I'm making. What, what do we see in this part of the Lord's answer to Jeremiah? Yeah, we, we have a, a beautiful uh, vision of what, what God discusses in what we, what we know, what we call from the um, small catechism, the close of the commandments, which in the, in the, as there is in the, in the Bible is actually more of an introduction to the commandments, but you know, God says, I, the Lord, you're God. I'm a jealous God punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love and compassion uh, to a thousand generations of those who love me. And, and here we see that exact dynamic at play. God is saying yes for a short time, maybe for a couple generations. And it, it turned out to be about, about one generation uh, worth of life that was, um, that, that was was exiled to Babylon before the Lord began to uh, resettle them back into uh, Jerusalem. Uh, yes, there will be this time of chastisement and this time of uh, what we might call law. Uh, but even as God um, does what what we in Lutheran theology call this alien work, which means work that God does, but it is um, 
a work which is for the purpose of something which is even dearer to his heart and his identity. And that's the work of loving kindness and mercy and faithfulness. And, and we see that even while God prom- promises this, um, or, or rather uh, gives this time of um the short time of punishment yet on the other side of this god promises generations and generations and even an eternity of well-being and prosperity and blessedness upon the people of israel and this blessedness which comes along um with with hearts that are um turned towards god and and this was fulfilled in um I would say a pregnant way, an incomplete way, when after uh, after a period of time, uh, God caused another kingdom, another empire to arise. So after the Babylonians came the Persians, and then um, the the Persian king Cyrus gave the edict that uh, that the Jews could, and in, in fact. Um, if, uh, if possible, should many of them return back to Jerusalem so they might rebuild their walls, uh, restart their society, and, and even mo- most importantly, um, reestablish the temple for the worship of, of God. Um, and that is a, uh, you know, certainly a pregnant uh, fulfillment of this. And uh, but I would also say that it's fulfilled much more um, in Christ. And I want to get to that in a minute. Uh, but before I do, I just want to point out um, as well that when it comes to this gracious work of God, you really have no better um you know, no better illustration of, of what Lutheran theologians call divine monergism uh, than this passage here in, in Jeremiah chapter 32. Now, what do we mean by divine monergism? So divine has to do with God. Uh, monergism, you know, so it comes from, um, you know, mono, which is one or alone and, and, you know, ergo, which is work. So it's, it's God's work alone. And, and this is truly the case when it comes to faith, and when it comes to salvation, that it's entirely 100% from beginning to end the work of God. So, you know, God says in, in Exodus that he shows, um, you know, shows love to a, and compassion to a thousand generations of those who love me. Um, well, then the question comes, well, where does that love even come, f- come from? And the answer God gives here is that love comes from me. <laughs> I'm going to turn their hearts to me. I'm going to give them faith in me. And I think that this is, um, I think that the greater miracle that, that God um, shows to, uh, that God shows to Jeremiah here and that Jeremiah recounts of all these miracles that are accounted is this granting of faith and love towards God. So, you know, remember this passage started off, um, well, this entire chapter started off with Jeremiah recounting these mighty acts of God, how God had, um, had laid low the Egyptians, settled the people into the promised land, this land of milk and honey. God recounts this as well, um, his great power and his mighty, um, acts that he can literally, uh, shape and form the course of, of human history uh, that, that he can send Kings to do his bidding and, um, and that he can lay nations low and raise them up to, to do as he pleases. The even greater miracle, the even greater work of God is not this moving the course of nations, but to change our hard hearts to him. This God who exercises so much power demonstrates his power in no greater way than this, that, that he is going to turn the hearts of this hard-hearted people towards him, um, to look to him in, in faith and in hope and trust and love. And so now we come to what I consider the greatest fulfillment of this passage. We, we read this passage in and we see that it's fulfilled in this 
sort of nascent way in the return of of um, of Israel back to the promised land. And and we have um, you know other passages, uh, we, other prophets uh, that that take this up. Um, you know that uh, we have this. You know, Zechariah, for example, talks about how God brings them back, and you know, through the commercial activity of 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 the people that they are they're brought back to prosperity um, once again, and so on. But but we look at this and we say, you know, does this really was this really fulfilled ultimately in this work? So God says. Um, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. And is this really the case um, that this first fulfillment of this and the return of the people to the promised land um, out of their, their Babylonian captivity is it really the case that this kingdom had one heart in one way, that they feared God forever? Uh, well, we can just look at history and say, <laughs> no, <laughs> right? Uh, that even after God had rescued them from uh, rescued them from their Babylonian captivity, they were far from unified in heart and unified in one way. I mean, they were divided against each other. They continued to be divided against each other. They continued uh, to, to do idolatry. And even more than this, um, we find that when God himself comes in Christ, that they, they reject God, right? Uh, the, the, the city rejects him. And this is the significance of the fact that Christ was, was crucified outside of um, Jerusalem. Jerusalem um, was the one city that every single Jew uh, had the right to enter into. You didn't necessarily have the right to enter into every city. Um, you, you, uh, your ability to enter into a city was was you know at the whims of the leaders of the city. Jerusalem was different. Every single Jew had the right to enter into the city of Jerusalem. And yet the city in which every single Jew had the right to enter yet rejected uh, Jesus Christ and cast him out and and rejected um, the one true God incarnate in him. Um, And it talks about, it goes on to talk about how I'll put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Uh, and so on. Um, and it, and talks about how this, there's going to be this everlasting prosperity and so on. Um, quite frankly, this was not fulfilled in, um, in this time of restoration when they return from Babylon, but this points to a greater, uh, a greater fulfillment, a fulfillment, which happens in Christ who gathers a people, um, to God who are God's people by very definition, by faith. It's only the faithful who belong to the true people of God and who are given this everlasting prosperity that will never end. Um, This prosperity, which is not possible in this world, but is only possible in the world to come by the blood that he shed for them so that the forgiveness of sins, they could dwell with God forever and that their hearts would be changed forever, you know, unified in their love of God, unified in their love for each other. And that's the great hope that we, God's faithful people, await for when Jesus Christ returns again. So the the ultimate fulfillment of this uh this work of uh this work that this sign act that God called um called Jeremiah to do to purchase this land, to seal up this deed in a sense, we're still waiting for the full, um, for the full, uh, the full realization of this promise, and we, the faithful people, um, are still ministered to by Jeremiah in this act, in that we look and wait for that time when we will be one with all God's people, one heart, one mind, um, fully dedicated to God, without even the sinful flesh to to lead us astray and in the eternal prosperity of the life of the world to come. Pastor Jackson, I really love the way that you connected this text to Christ so vividly 
with one of the things that that stands out to me as I was reading this part of the Lord's answer to Jeremiah is in verse 40 where the Lord says he's going to make an everlasting covenant with the people. And I think the, the way you've talked about the work of our Lord Jesus Christ and the nature of the everlasting, you know, certainly comes through that word covenant stands out because there was that really key passage back in chapter 31, where the Lord said the days are coming when he's going to make this new covenant based on the forgiveness of sins. And here that same language comes up in the answer to Jeremiah, this everlasting covenant. Could you could you talk a little bit more about the the covenant and how that plays into this answer? And again, that the connection to Christ. Just as a, a heads up, we have about seven minutes left on the morning as we continue to reflect on the text. Yeah, sure. I mean, so I mean this this terminology of covenant is just um, incredibly rich, right? So um, we we take a look at the word covenant, and right away my mind goes back to. Um, Back to the commissioning. Well, when when the people of Israel were sealed um, into being God's people, uh, all the way back at Mount Sinai. So, so God gives uh, the law to the people, um, and uh, you know the people say, "We will follow this, and we will be your people." And then um, God commands. Moses to take the blood of uh, the bull, the bulls that were sacrificed and to sprinkle half of it upon the altar and to take the other half and to sprinkle this upon um, the people. And in a sense, through this, um, through this sprinkling of the blood of the bulls and um, upon the people and upon the altar that, that the people and God are united in um, sort of a blood bond, you know, in a, in a quite, literal way they have this uh blood bond now this this bond uh between god and the people is is always threatened um on account of their iniquities and um and their sins and so this uh you know this 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 covenant of blood with the people this this initial covenant it's it's always limited right so it's it's limited um, through the sins of the people, and so because of this, there needs to be this yearly renewal of this covenant that we see in the Day of Atonement, uh, where the sins of the people are are dealt with uh, year by year, um, so that they would not be you know, cut off from this special relationship with God, and then um, but. But again, this is this is a really limited thing, right? So this 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 work of the Day of Atonement, um, it's good for a year, right? And then year by year, it has to be in a sense renewed, and it's really limited in terms of of space, right? So um, this this covenant of uh of work shall we say um it's really dependent upon this location of of the temple and uh you know in order to be a a fully participating um israelite in this in this religious life you had to be in a sense uh able to to live within the bounds in which you could participate in temple life and I don't want this to sound, um, you know, we, we have to be careful with this because on the one hand, you know, our, our passage today in, in Jeremiah 32 talks about the importance of uh, the temple and how turning their backs in a literal way upon the temple was a, a problem uh, for the Israelites. But at the same time, um, it did make for a very uh a great geographical limitation um, upon this um, upon this 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 covenant which uh, was given um, and as well this covenant was given while we'll see ultimately that um, this this covenant relationship that God has with Israel is for the sake of uh, every nation at the same time this covenant was with with one nation right so it's limited in terms of ethnicity it's limited in terms of geography it's limited in terms of chronology uh but 
then, but we see that um, in Christ, there is this um, great covenant, which, you know, you point out um, here in 32, that uh, chapter 32, that it's this, you know, everlasting covenant. It's a covenant that is not confined by time. And I think that we can, you know, we can even expand upon that. Um, whereas the old covenant was, was constricted by time. Um, this new covenant, even while it's not constrained by time, it's, it's also not constrained by space. It's not constrained by nationality. Um, and it's not constrained in terms of, uh, any of these, uh, any of these things, because the, the, the sacrifice of Christ, which is this new covenant, um, which Christ calls his, his blood, a, a new covenant. He does so very literally in the, in the giving of the Lord's supper. Um, this new covenant, as it talks about in Hebrews is because it, it's so worthy because it's a covenant through the shedding of the blood of the son of God it's not constrained by any of these things. So it's a, it's a covenant which is offered because it's such a worthy covenant. It's not offered um, just to one people, but it's for, for all the peoples of the world. Whoever is uh, whoever believes and is baptized is as a part of this covenant and is, is received it and has this special bond uh, with God and the forgiveness of their sins. It's a covenant, which is not constrained by time either. Whereas even the greatest covenants of old had a, had a, in essence, uh, uh, you know, had to be renewed year by year. Um, this covenant uh, that, that we have with Christ is an eternal one. Um, and there was one full and final sacrifice in Christ. Um, and it's not constrained by time, nor is it constrained um, by, uh, by nationality, uh, nor is it constrained in terms of, of space. And this is why uh, we can participate, continue to participate in this covenant as we participate in the blood of Christ. Uh, wherever we receive his body and blood, um, wherever we hear the gospel, wherever we remember our baptism, wherever we encounter the scriptures, there Christ is uh, the son of God. And so therefore, um, truly, this is the reason why Christ could say, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This covenant is a universal covenant constrained by neither ethnicity nor space nor time. Pastor Christopher Jackson is the pastor at St. John's Lutheran Church in Algoma, Wisconsin, and St. Peter's Lutheran Church in Forestville, Wisconsin, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 26 to 44. Pastor Jackson, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks for having me on. I always have a great time. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Jeremiah or comments on the series, we'd love to hear from you. Send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the app and the open mic feature there to record up to a 60-second message. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.